Welcome to Listen by Jean Ginsberg. This audio experience and podcast is all about social media, digital marketing, entrepreneurship, and interviews with top entrepreneurs in the digital and social space. I am your host, Jean Ginsberg, digital marketing expert, number one best-selling author, and award-winning entrepreneur. I will be sharing with you strategies, tips, and tactics on how to grow your business and your social media following. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Gene Ginsberg here and welcome back to the podcast and we have an exciting guest today, Ben Jackson. How's it going? Oh, today's a great day, Gene. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here. We got connected through YPO. I know that your your previous CEO used to be a YPO, is that right? And and you just uh, joined the organization, right? I, I took the reins, so former CEO, now current CEO again, took the reins from a YPO member going through that process right now. So hoping to be a new member shortly. I have been involved in a number of executive mastermind groups, and this one's a super exciting one for me. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share more about YPO. But before I do that and kind of provide back there, which happy to, to do so, Tell uh, our audience a little about, about your background, kind of how, where you started, and then how you ended up here. Yeah. So I started my first company when I was 22, which is now almost 20 years ago, out in the Silicon Valley. Started a fitness company that was like, we turned, built this really interesting model. And when I say it out loud, it sounds really familiar. And there's a household name that everyone knows that does exactly what we were aspiring to do. We had a subscription based personal training model where we were doing virtual online personal training as well as in person. Uh, but we had really created an interesting workout from anywhere concept. And we had just started launching YouTube personal training as well as we had a, a number of physical locations. So all that said, then 2008 happened and I didn't particularly know how to pinch my pennies. I knew how to grow revenue, but I didn't really know to change when the market changed with the financial crisis. So since then, I, I made a commitment to my wife that I would not use our own money nor be a, a CEO up until the point where we were in a place where our children were well taken care of, college, where the college funds were fully funded, we were financially in a better position. Because in your 20s, you spend all your money and you go broke trying to chase a dream. And so I went from there to a, a number of different companies, notably LinkedIn was in the middle of my tenure. So I was at LinkedIn when... We kind of grew after like right on the edge of IPO to when, uh, you know, a couple of years after the Microsoft acquisition with the objective there to learn all of, all of the different roles. I believed I, I still had some skill gaps in. So I ran a, a large scale support organization and the large scale customer success team and then grew and scaled our small business sales organization across North America at LinkedIn. So that was, that was a blast. I've been through a couple of other technology startups in between, and then Flywheel and WP Engine, a website hosting company that has some very, very large aspirations. I led both a sales team and then later a product team. One of the things that I've always known was that once you're a CEO, you're, you're sort of always a CEO. You just have a different job title. And so I had the privilege of consistently just finding new problems within businesses to solve. And every time there was a new, bigger, more interesting problem to solve, I kind of pivoted and tried to tackle that. So I enjoy solving problems probably too much. I have an appetite for pain that's unusual, but I, I love building great teams and I love, love solving big problems. Well, yeah, when you're a business owner or you're CEO of a company, I guess that's, that's really in your DNA, right? Solving problems and to a point where that might be unhealthy. 
I can totally relate and understand that. So uh, yeah, great. Thank you so much for the background. This was really helpful to kind of understand where you're coming from. So tell us about the organization that you're part of now. Yeah. So the company's called Vidanix, V-I-D-A-N-Y-X. And the the history of Vidanix is a really interesting one. It started out of an incubator program up in Seattle in partnership with the Omaha Community Foundation's original CEO and Project Harmony in, here in Omaha, which is one of the country's most notable child advocacy centers. And what a child advocacy center is, most people in the world don't know what this is, which is great for us in some ways, and it's terrible for us in some ways, is when a child kind of tells an adult that they've been abused in some way, and that adult knows where to go, they'll either report to a teacher, law enforcement, some other entity, where what will happen then is the child will be taken to a child advocacy center to be interviewed. It's a safe place. It's less intimidating than law enforcement, right? Kids don't really always feel comfortable talking to a police officer. They don't always feel comfortable talking to their teacher. And so they meet with this person called a forensic interviewer who is trained to simply understand what happened in a neutral setting so that the child feels safe to share some of the scariest things that have ever happened to them. And what will happen then is that will be recorded onto a typically a digital device, sometimes device that's only located on premise, so it's recorded on a regular camera. Then here's what happens and the problem that we solve in the world. Then it's usually burned onto a DVD or a USB drive. And then there are multiple copies made, one given to law enforcement, child protective services, public defense, public prosecutors. And through that kind of that transfer of information, problems can happen, right? Files get lost, files get corrupted, files get accidentally put in the wrong hands. We have lots of examples where that DVD or that USB was actually given to the wrong person, like the defendant, and then showed back to the child in a way to intimidate them. Terrifying ways, right? So you can say like the most, you know, the scariest event that ever happened to a person is now in someone's physical hands to go use against them. It's terrifying. So what we created was a digital platform where that information can be securely stored. The names and identities of every single person who accesses that file have to be registered and identified in a, a multi-factor authentication process. So it can't just be passed along. Those files can be very well encrypted. They can be time-based. We can choose what part of that information is shared and what's not. And so it just kind of allows for that to move through the justice system. What we also found in our interviews was when it goes to your public defenders, as an example, there's also some challenges with how to manage the volume of evidence that they have to collect. There's just so much, there's so many videos, there's so many photos, there's so many digital records and files that we're now identifying ways to help make that simpler to organize, to capture, and to make sure that it's ready for either a, a discussion with defense to make a plea agreement or to charge and take to court and so for us, there's, there's sort of these problems we found in this just, you know, the justice ecosystem that we're uniquely positioned to help solve just by virtue of the, you know, the most sensitive information, the most protected, most secure is the one that people seem to trust the most, the people that can handle that, can handle anything. Wow, that's a very important and, but niche product. How did this all come about? You said that the previous CEO was the founder of the organization? Was there like a backstory to how this and why this all got started? Yeah, the, the story is a great one. So there's one of our early investors 
kind of had this thesis that there needs to there need to be more profitable organizations in the world that also do good that they're philanthropic philanthropic in nature serve you know the typically marginalized people like direct service providers as an example if you're a forensic interviewer most people don't know what that is they don't know that that exists and they're you know underpaid they deal with a lot of challenges in the world and so most of the software and technology applications that they have are not designed for them. They're not intuitive. They're not really for their purposes. And so they, they kind of built this framework where they would go out into the world and find problems. The organization is called Giving Tech Labs. One of the original investors was here out of the state of Nebraska and also had some offices up in Seattle, up near Microsoft, where he, he came from. And so they started looking for these problems and they found this problem at Project Harmony, which was this DVD problem. And so as they started to un unpack the layers, they started to realize, actually, we can build a company around this. The company was originally founded in Seattle, found the first CEO here in Omaha, who kind of carried the torch for about four years up until the time where she passed that torch recently to me. And so I kind of stepped in, having done some previous work, and I did some previous work with a human trafficking organization, Eradication of Human Trafficking. And so I had some idea of what this business was and what challenges we face as well as, you know, obviously a company that's based in the Midwest, based in Omaha, Nebraska, where I, where I choose to live uh, was a wonderful experience to go like, Hey, this is a high growth technology startup series, a company that's doing good in the world at scale. Do you want to go take us to another level? And how can you say no to that privilege? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. Which you mentioned, you know, challenges. So what would you say are some of the challenges, but then, you know, what are the things that you're doing to scale and grow the organization? Yeah. The challenges in our space are really interesting and, and complicated. Some of them have to do with funding. They have to do with just how nonprofit agencies and, and government entities go through funding processes. And so we are subject to typically longer than normal sales processes. So for us, it just means that we have to have really clear messaging, really clear understanding of how business decisions are made, which is a little bit unusual. We also have the challenge of moving from a a world where you own a thing to a world where it's digital and you just access a thing. So it sounds kind of silly, but like many of the people, you know, most of the people we work with are so used to owning the evidence, right? That physical piece of plastic with metal, like I own that, it's mine. It's in an archive, it's in a safe I can see is actually a, a significant hurdle to move from that to digital access, right? Saying it's cloud technology, it should not be foreign, but it is. And and some of those things can just take a little bit of time to walk people through and go like, hey, this is a normal thing. This is okay. We are CJIS ready on a compliance level, meaning criminal justice ready. We're HIPAA compliant. We're all these things that like, we're actually significantly safer, more secure than what you just said, but it's different. And so that change management takes a little bit of time and education. I, the other part of it is, is there's a shift from that same idea, a lot of the current technologies in our space are on-prem, meaning installed onto a server. And so there's usually some technical compl complications working with IT departments going like, hey, some of this stuff we're going to have to integrate with your on-prem technology, with our cloud technology. And so there's usually some technology challenges to, to kind of go back and forth on. But those are not, not at the level that we don't believe we can handle or that we're not unfamiliar with. We kind of get used to the, you know, the game and go like, we understand, we'll work our way through it. We are going to make your life a lot easier, but it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to change what you were used to. And are there like not specifically like, you know, tech challenges, but just overall industry challenges that you're experiencing as well? 
Very much so. So legislation dictates a lot of direction. So there are some there are some jurisdictions, whether that's the city, the county, the state, even sometimes at the federal level, that dictate what we're able to do safely and securely and what we're not able to do safely and securely, what can be shared, what can't be shared. There's also some of that changes, uh, this is going to sound like a course word, but like changes the demand. So as an example, we have some states that will change the volume of interviews they want to do. So they'll say, hey, we're going to change legislation. So every single kid who is under the age of 15 needs to be interviewed. And then the next year, they'll change it to 16 or 17 or 18 or 19. And when you change that, it actually changes the volume of total interviews that are required. And so those legislative changes have cascading effects for us, because that means ultimately, like, we're going to have to you know, ultimately tell the customer in order to, to fulfill that, you're not only going to have to hire enough people to do that, but you're also going to have to pay significantly more for all of the additional videos you're going to be capturing in the system. Right, right. Uh, okay, uh, so yes, challenges, of course, every industry has some. Now let's turn it around. What are some ways that you guys are doing to get around those challenges, scale and grow the business? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things that are really fascinating that we found to be just a matter of connecting two dots. So one as an example, we, we are enabling a new technology that allows for live streaming a video, which is a really big deal in, in this space because there are so many differences in jurisdiction, there's language differences. Um, we oftentimes have uh, customers who are trying to figure out how to get an interview done with, uh, you know, a, a child who can't either speak English or is deaf or mute. And so we're going, well, in your jurisdiction, you might not have the budget to go hire that person, but someone in your state or in your adjacent state has that person already on staff. We can help connect you and help you through this, through live streaming, do what's called a courtesy interview. And the ability to scale that right now has become a really strong benefit to our customers because the attrition rates in this industry is very, very high, right? If you think about the secondary trauma someone goes through who does all of these interviews, they may decide tomorrow is their next day or their last day because they're going, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep hearing these horrifying things. And so I'm leaving. And so for them, a lot of times it's like, how do we make sure that we're helping our customers find new solutions? If you can't hire fast enough, can't train someone fast enough, what are ways that we could help you connect with another interview center? So that's kind of one way that we're doing today. The other is through the use of AI. So we're, we're looking at new solutions regularly to say, how can we help take this massive volume of information and simplify it down and help direct your eyes where to go, your ears where to go, to know what actually happened? Because one of the challenges that we find is in, in any case that you know anyone looks at or the volume of evidence that a, a police officer or investigator typically gathers, it can be massive. It can be 20, 40, 80, hundreds of hours per case. And so there's no way to bring that all down into a simplified story to, to walk over to a prosecutor and say, here's what you should do next. There isn't a simple way. And so unfortunately, that creates bias in the system. So then what we're seeing is prosecutors are simply having to rely very heavily on law enforcement to decide what to do. Well, that creates an accidental bias. It's never intentional. It's mostly just like they're trying to help one another do their jobs better. But that ultimately means that things get missed in you know, the wrong prosecution actions happen, plea deals are made that shouldn't have been made, people go to, you know, to prison that shouldn't have, et cetera, that we're just going like, how do we simplify that? And how do we make sure that the right information is organized in such a way that you can action upon it? We have no opinion on it. We just allow you to simply figure out what you need to go see and go get to it quickly. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, 
on this podcast, especially, we've been talking a lot about the changes of AI, right? And how AI, you know, has already been revolutionizing industries. And so it's very interesting to hear. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure like one way could be eventually, you mentioned like it's hard to train and get people on board, right? Like there's probably some sort of AI component there in the near future. So yeah, it's fascinating to talk about this concept. Yeah. Very much agree. I think we've, what we're realizing, probably, probably like everyone right now is, is formulating an opinion around how you use AI and, you know, deciding where you go, where you don't go. It, you know, there, there's some ethical implications. There's some safety and security implications. Uh, and there, there's some privacy regulations that we're very mindful of to say like, look, our objective is to use it as a tool, right? There's a lot of applications for this tool. As an example, we're now starting to use it for our internal development just to do you know, to, to look at how our code is written and look at, you know, better ways to improve the speed and, you know, the velocity of how we code. But what about the scenario where you're going? How do we make sure that we understand these large, you know, these these large language models that you want to do for a, a customer who's been, who's interviewing children who've been abused? Well, that story has to be protected, right? The words that that child said, how do we make sure it's accurate? Right, safely so their story isn't accidentally exposed to the world, isn't accidentally exposed to open source technology. How do we make sure we protect it? And so we are learning very quickly that we just have to have very strong opinions on what we do, what we don't do, and what our role is to play in securing private information, which is really important to us. Are there other, I mean, it sounds like there's other applications to what you are currently doing, like, I mean, securing video and documents, I mean, that probably can be transcended across a lot of other legal ways, right? That's right. So there's there's lots of different, you know, use cases, uh, not just in law enforcement, not just in public prosecution, public defense. There's also other very you know clear use cases like insurance fraud claims, things like that, that you would be able to see and view and say, yes, this happened, you know, that didn't happen, capture with your phone, somebody who's been, who was right there, have them send you a video ring cameras. There's a video camera everywhere. We find this to be the, the biggest challenge for us is figuring out whether or not you use it as a utility or whether or not you have a functional use that helps you connect with other people. And so for us, we, we choose to stay in a very specific ecosystem because we want to make sure that we're really being careful about like, here's who needs to see what, here's what they're going to see. And we enjoy the challenge probably more than anything. It's like, this is a very difficult and complicated world, which we enjoy a little bit more. And we also believe that there's a very strong purpose behind what we do. And so being a mission-based company and staying true to that mission is really important. But yes, to your point, there's a lot of applications for allowing for the storage of video evidence, the ability to share it, the ability to actually analyze it and make you know some degree of information predictable, et cetera. There's, there's lots of really cool applications that we'll, we're always looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I, as I was kind of thinking about it as you were describing the business. I was like, well, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like you want to niche down and just be within that specific mission-driven application, but I'm sure that was like, yeah, there's probably a lot of different ways in how this can be done. But uh, yeah, last question is, you know, what's your prediction for the industry? And that could be specifically the industry that we're just talking about now, or, you know, pick one that's top of mind to you, <laughs> terraforming Mars, <laughs> living in different right. planets, <laughs> longevity, that's a big one that's come up here, self-driving cars. <laughs> yeah, wow. I, my, 
I don't know if this is a prediction as much as that this is like my hope and the thing that we pursue. Maybe they're both. But my hope is that as as companies like us and others like us exist in the world, we want to make sure that through the use of great technology, we do good in the world. And for us, it's usually going like, okay, what are some additional applications where we can help eliminate human errors, human bias, things that accidentally disrupt, in our case, you know, pretty heavy things like things in the justice system, right? Clear outcomes, people going to prison, people being falsely accused, you know, in the case of like mishandling of a video, a forensic interview, a child going back to an abusive home, things like that. We want to be able to go like, okay, and we use our technology to, to provide more insight, more intelligence in places that are actionable. I humorously tell people like it's not like Minority Report. If you ever watched that movie, it's not like that. Where we're going to predict, we're going to predict future crimes. I don't, I don't know that we'll get to that place. In fact, I think there's some ethical problems with that. But I think there's there's possibilities using crowdsourcing, large scale learning model, and even behavioral science to start to really better predict things that can be done. To say like, hey, we're starting to see that people in these communities are more likely to do X. What can we do to provide more proactive services by virtue of like the information and the intelligence we're able to bring? How can we make sure that the right people are getting justice in a more actionable way that's predictable? And when I say predictable, it's usually like helping attorneys in many cases make decisions, making a charging decision with with only a short amount of time, right? The volume of cases your, your average public prosecutor has to handle is way too much for a human to ever really understand what happens. And so for us, it's really trying to go, how do, we, how do we get to as close to the truth of the story as we possibly can and expose that to those who need to go take action? So for us, it's the future, we believe, is a place where there's less human error, there's less bias, there's less ineffective technology solutions in the justice system so that the future world is better protected and more proactive than just waiting until an event occurs before we take an action. I love that. Yes. What can we do to be more proactive? Yeah, like that movie, <laughs> Minority Report. I don't know how, how true it is in the future. It's a kind of an interesting point, but maybe not as applicable in the in the future. But yeah, what could we do to, to just mitigate that moving forward and having maybe technology or AI support us? Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. That was a, oh, I love this conversation and really, you know, enjoyed talking to companies that are mission driven. Last question is how can I audiences get in touch with you or your organization? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the website is vdanix.com and because it's a funny name, I'll, I'll spell it out again. It's V-I-D-A-N-Y-X.com. Ben, vdanix.com is my email. Or in real life, I am here in Omaha, Nebraska. And so if you ever want to grab a cup of coffee or go out to lunch, I would be more than happy to. I love human interactions. I believe the, we're, we're built to be part of communities. And so I love to be in, in real life and shake hands, hugs, fist bumps, elbows. All that I think is a special opportunity to be in real life with other humans. IRL. I love it. Thank <laughs> you so much. Yeah. Thanks for being on the, on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Gene. Really appreciate you.